All right. Good morning, beloved. I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians chapter 2. We've made it to Colossians chapter 2. And our verses of focus for today will be in verses 1 through 5. So Colossians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And this morning I am teaching out of the New American Standard Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one in the, in the front of the pew there or the back of the pew. You can help yourself to that. You can keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. So, let's get right into it. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to begin in, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Here now are the words of the living and true God. The Apostle Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together, in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument for even though I'm absent in body nevertheless I am with you in spirit Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Um, as I've mentioned before, um, this letter is a prison epistle, meaning that when it was written, Paul was imprisoned in Rome. But it is also very much a pastoral epistle meaning that it is a letter that flows from Paul's pastoral heart as he had such a deep love for God's people, the church. And we see that loving concern once again in our verses here this morning. Now, as I mentioned throughout this series, one of the overarching themes of this book is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. But that theme is taught and that theme is proclaimed out of a true love for the church. In other words, it is because Paul has a true love for God's people that he desires to give them the only thing that will satisfy them, the only thing that will equip them, the only thing that will build them up, and that is the truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 1, the doctrine of Christ is declared. It is pronounced. It is preached. And now beginning in chapter 2, we will see the dangers exposed. Christ exalted, the dangers exposed. And which, by the way, is always the twofold ministry of a good shepherd of the church. It is on one hand to feed the sheep, and on the other hand to fight off the wolves. It is one, to equip God's people, and to two, expose the false teachers. There's always that mentality in the heart and mind of a true shepherd. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah is an excellent 
example and picture of this. You might recall if you've read the book of Nehemiah, we went through it quite a few years ago. They rebuilt the wall that had been destroyed around the temple, and they rebuilt it with what? With a trowel in one hand and with what? Sword in the other. With one hand they built the wall, and with one hand they wielded a sword to fight off their enemies. And the same is true in Paul's case as he's writing to the Colossians. On one hand, he's pointing to the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ, and with his other hand, he's exposing the heresy of these false teachers. So as we turn our attention now to chapter 2, I want you to notice that interwoven with the preeminence of Jesus Christ that is clearly declared in chapter 1, that as now we come to chapter 2, we also see woven in is a pastor's love for God's people. In other words, why Paul's primary focus of his writing is pointing people to Christ and Christ alone um, to give them a deeper understanding of who Christ is and what Christ done, that also in the midst of all of that, sort of in the backdrop of all that, if you will, is a pastor's love for God's people. And I say that because if you look back at chapter 1 for just a moment, we see Paul's gratitude for the believers in Colossae. We saw that in verses 3 through 8. And not only do we see that he was grateful for what God was doing in their lives, but we also see his earnest prayer for them in verses 9 through 14. Then, in the midst of verses 15, 20 to 20, giving one of the most profound description of Jesus Christ that there is in all of the Bible, Paul then after goes back to writing about his ministry, about how seriously he takes his ministry, and the goal of his ministry, and we covered that in verses 24 to 29 last week. In verse 24, Paul said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church I was made a minister, bestowed on me for your benefit. And so all interwoven with the preeminence of Jesus Christ and all of his glory, Paul also talks about his own heart and his own affection for these Colossian believers. And that is because Paul sees himself as a minister of the Lord's church, whose mission here on earth is to serve God's people. Remember, diakonos, the Greek word for um, minister, is a servant. He's actually a, a, like a dish boy who comes in after the people of E, cleans the tables, and takes the dishes away. Paul sees himself as a servant to serve the Lord's church. And each and every one of us are to be the Lord's servants as well. In Matthew 23, 11, Jesus said, The greatest among you will be your servant. He also said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is an example for us. We exist not to be served, but to serve. And that's the life we should aspire to live. Now, as Paul writes these words, we can't miss seeing his authenticity through all these words because he's living out what he says here, okay? It's not like Paul sitting up on the top of some ivory castle somewhere in a, in a lap of luxury. 
Paul is a prisoner being held captive against his will in Rome, a prisoner no less of Caesar Nero. He is confined also to house arrest, chained to a Roman centurion god 24 hours a day, seven days a week, as he awaits his trial before Caesar, who has the power of life and of death. And yet in the midst of this, he is more concerned about serving and loving others than he is for others to serve himself. What an example he sets for all of us in our own relationships. And so as we look at our text this morning, I want you to think about what does that practically look like in my own life? How can I better serve the body of Christ within the church and uh, for those that God puts around me outside of the church? Now, as we go through our text this morning, I broke it up into five headings, and because of everything that uh, occurred this week, um, I won't be going through all five headings. We'll get through uh, as many of them the Lord allows this morning. But you'll see these headings on the back of your bulletin, and we'll certainly get through number one, um, Paul's spiritual struggle. I want you to notice first Paul's spiritual struggle. And we see this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2. Notice how the first half of the verse begins. Paul writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Now, whenever we see that word uh, for um, start a new sentence, I always like to remember it. We need to know what's it there for, right? We need to know what's before it as the word for is a word of explanation um, for us. And so for is continuing Paul thought Back in chapter 1, if we go back to, say, about verse uh, 28, um, Paul's talking about proclaiming Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man all wisdom, and, and that's Paul's concern here. He was concerned that the believers in Colossae were being taught about the true Christ, not the created one of the Gnostics, but rather the Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, chapter 1, verse 15. And remember, firstborn there. Um, is, is not a firstborn in the physical sense as it is he is in first place. He is in preeminence. He is the preeminent one. Because in the very next verse, chapter 1, verse 16, for by him, by Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, and on the earth, uh, all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. And so Paul says down in verse 28, we proclaim him. That's the Christ we proclaim, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Verse 29, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power. Now jump to verse 1 of chapter 2. For, Paul says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. Now, this word Paul uses for struggle is the word agon in the Greek, and you hear it in the English language, agony, agonizing, agon. And so what Paul is conveying in verse 1 is that I want you to know how great I am agonizing for you. Now, as Paul says this, he's not drawing attention to himself. He's actually saying this to encourage them, that you are this important to me and to God that in prison, I'm not worrying about myself, I am laboring on your behalf. You see, Paul doesn't come across as some elite who sits up in his ivory tower 
disconnected from God's people. No, Paul wants them to know I'm anguishing on your behalf. And notice the rest of verse 1. It's not only for these Colossians, but he says, and for those at Laodicea and for those who have not personally seen my face. And so this is all right in that um, Lychus Valley that's located in Ephesus. is like um, 12 miles, I think, away. But um, Laodicea, um, Colossae, they're all in this little valley here. And there were also other little churches all through here. So Paul, remember, he's writing a letter to these Christians he's never met. He's in prison, and the pastor of Colossae came a thousand miles to visit Paul while he was in prison. And so Paul's receiving this information from um, the pastor there, Epaphras, and then he's responding. He's writing back to the Colossians after hearing about their great faith and what God has done. And so Paul's writing not only to these Colossians he's never met, but to a lot of people he's never met. And once you know it, we're reading it 2,000 years later, and I haven't met Paul yet. But here's the question. If Paul's in prison, which he is, and Paul has not even seen the face of many of these believers, how is he agonizing for them? How is he struggling on their behalf? How is he um, fighting for them? The answer is Paul's struggle was spiritual. Spiritual, or in other words, Paul was agonizing on his knees in prayer. And we know this because Paul wrote another letter during the same time he was imprisoned and wrote to the Colossians, he also wrote another letter to the book of the Ephesians, the church in Ephesus. And in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, here's what Paul has to say about our struggle. He wrote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In the spiritual realm, in other words. But what does all this mean? It means Paul understood we're at war. We're always at war in the spiritual sense. This is not time to um, have a picnic lunch for the church and to fall asleep and for the church to put her guards down. We're at spiritual war. And the enemy of God is trying to infiltrate the church of God with false Christ and false doctrine. In fact, it has already begun. There are in our time, not only in Paul's, in our time, thousands of churches in the United States alone who preach what's called a different gospel. They change the person of Christ. We have people here who praise the Lord. We're given ears to hear and eyes to see that we're following a different Christ, a false Christ, one who cannot save. These are lies that have infiltrated the church, causing people to doubt their own salvation. It is absolutely crippling. And these are lies like those in Colossae that claim that Jesus is great and all, but he's not enough. And so we must have our defenses up. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. This is all spiritual, the spiritual realm. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, present darkness. These are all in the spiritual realm, uh, rankings of, of angelic fallen beings. And, and this is our battle. And so Paul was not nonchalantly going about his day as a pastor. He was reminded every day that he was in chains for Christ. 
You see, Paul's crime was preaching the gospel and he's been in prison for it. And you see, Paul always had on the full armor of God because he was constantly in spiritual battle, agonizing on his knees on behalf of the church of God. So we, church, must also be those who agonize over, who feel the gravity of the spiritual warfare before us, that we should be a people who fight on our knees before God. God, give us men and women who will agonize with every fiber of their being for you, that we would fight for the souls of our children, souls for our grandchildren, our brothers, our sisters, our loved ones who are lost, that we would fight for those people who are weak in the faith, that we would come alongside them in the church, that we would leave no soldier behind, that there would be a strong soldiers in the armor in the army of God, marching under the banner of Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. So Paul says, I want you to know, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. So point number one, Paul's spiritual struggle. And as Paul agonizes in prayer on behalf of the church, he now lists four things he seeks to see in the lives of every believer. And so next I want you to notice our second point, the strengthened heart. And by the way, this is what every pastor prays for as he um, prepares his sermon each week for the church. He prays that the word of God would minister the church in such a way that when they leave here on Sunday morning, that their hearts are filled, that they are strengthened by the word of the Lord. So let's notice how verse 2 begins. Paul writes that their hearts may be encouraged. And let's just stop right there for a moment. This word for encouraged in the Greek is parakleto, and it means to exhort, to call alongside someone. And because a person can be called alongside for a number of purposes, this word ends up having a very wide range of meanings. It includes the idea of being comforted, being strengthened, being encouraged, and it can mean all of those things. However, scholars suggest in this context, and I tend to agree, that it would be best translated as strengthened. Because as one Bible scholar noted, the Colossians were being infiltrated by false teachers and needed strengthening rather than comfort here. And so I think that is the more particular emphasis that Paul had in mind as he is anguishing that their hearts would be encouraged, yes, but more so strengthened. Now, another term that needs to be pointed out is that term heart here. Um, when the heart is used, uh, typically, figuratively, a lot of times in the Bible, um, the word heart refers more broadly to the inner person, the inner self, the, the real you. All right, and it's usually used in reference to the mind or to the will of man. In the Hebrew language, the writers don't talk a lot about the brain. They talk a lot about the heart. And the heart was the area of the intellect. Think about um, texts like Proverbs 23, 7. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. All right. Um, even in the New Testament, the heart is usually used as a synonym for the mind. So what Paul's really saying here is, I want your minds to be strengthened. 
But why does he say that? Because the mind is the first thing that Satan assails. You understand that, right? That Satan assails the mind with lies. He's the father of what? Lies. He brings around counterfeit truths, counterfeit information, and assaults the mind with it. And if effective, that directs the behavior in our response. And so it is necessary to have a strong mind, to renew your mind. Romans 12, 1 through 2. Um, but how? How can we strengthen our own minds, you ask? Well, for starters, the way your mind is strengthened is by filling it with the, the divine truth of God's word. And when the mind is being filled with biblical truth, something amazing happens. Your emotions will begin then to respond in a way which then honors God. This is why Proverbs 4.23 says to watch over your heart with all diligence for from it flow the springs of life. Proverbs 23.19 also says believers are to direct your heart in the way. And so we are called to like guide our hearts that they may follow the path of pleasing God and to do that, we need his help. We need his help. We can't will this into being. Um, Psalms 26 verse, t, uh, 26 verse 2, David cries out, Examine me, O Lord, and try me, or test me. Test my mind and my heart. What is the means of a strong mind, you might ask? Well, in Ephesians 3 verse 16, Paul prays to the Father on our behalf. Paul prays, Father, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The spirit strengthens the hearts of those who yield their lives to God's control. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 26, John 15, 26, and in John 16, 17, the helper, which is one of the Holy Spirit's designations, is used in these verses. And it's the Greek noun form of the parakleo. And so you, it could actually be translated the strengthener. The strengthener in those passages. So it is the Holy Spirit that strengthens us in the inner man. How you ask? How does it that we, how is it that, that you ask? It happens by drinking the pure milk of the word. First Peter 2, 2 says that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. He does it through trials and difficulties that come along the way. He does it through discipleship, teachers and other Christians who minister to us in the spirit as he strengthens us. Like as he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Verse 2, Paul says, And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So Paul essentially says, Hey, I'm sending Timothy because the Spirit will use him to strengthen and to encourage you. So the Spirit may do it directly in your life. He may do it through the Word of God. He may do it through some other believer's life. And as you yield to the Spirit, and as He works in you, and as you discipline yourself in the study of God's Word, 
allow yourself to be discipled by other um, faithful believers who come beside you. As you do all this, you will find your inner man is being strengthened. And the next thing you know, your mind and your will become strengthened. And when they they are faced with a test, they will have a godly reaction as a result of that. And now you have the assurance of God that though not perfect, you are confident that you will not fall into the lies and deceptions of the evil one. For the Spirit of God fortifies you and strengthens you in your faith. And so Paul says, I agonize over this and I pray that their hearts will be strengthened. Well, that takes us to point number three as Paul prays next for their shared love. Their shared love towards one another. And this is the beautiful balance between being strong in heart and united in love. Strong in heart, united in love. We do not want to get carried away with the intellect. We don't want to turn Christianity into something that is completely, totally academic. Because that is in it. There is a great beating pulse of Christianity and that is its love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am what? Nothing. And if I give all my possessions and feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing so our knowledge must always be balanced with our love let's continue now in verse 2 again paul wants them to know how great a struggle he has on their behalf that their hearts verse 2 may be encouraged or or strengthened having been knit together in love having been knit together in love now here paul's answering the question practically how will they be strengthened how will god's people be encouraged the answer is having been knit together in love it's talking about fellowship it's talking about their mutual ministry towards one another and this again underscores a very important point for your christian life that if you're doing this thing without godly encouragement without godly um, strengthening, without godly counsel, apart from, separated from the body of Christ, if you're doing this all on your own, of course you're going to be weak in the faith. We are made to be a part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ. You need like-minded brothers and like-minded sisters in the Lord who who serve as almost like... um, bookends on a bookshelf that keep the books in the middle upright and standing strong you need trusted bookends who will help bear your burdens who will speak truth and love to you in a time of need now these four words having been knit together is all just one word in the greek and it means to be joined together to unite to be knit together now obviously this means more than you're just all sitting here today on a Sunday in the same room with someone at the same time. 
What it means is that there is a joining together, a uniting together in one spirit through a common faith and a common love, one baptism, one spirit, one Christ. And there's a union in that relationship. And what Paul is saying is the more the Christian heart is being strengthened and the more it's being knitted together, they become as a body, one body, the body of Christ. Maybe think about it this way. It's kind of like one of these uh, beautiful quilts or, or blankets. Um, I know some of you women, women like to crochet. I don't, but I've watched my wife do it a lot. And what she does is she takes all these different colored threads, right? And she starts to knit them all together. And the, and the closer that she knits them together, the, the tighter those individual strands become. And the tighter those individual strands become, the more unified they become. And the more unified they become, the harder it is to divide them. Take a phone book, for example. Take one page out of a phone book, it's easy to tear. Take 40 pages out of a phone book. A little bit harder to tear. Try tearing an entire phone book in half. You can't do it. And this is replete throughout Scripture. Take Ecclesiastes 4.12, speaking of love and the relationship between a husband and wife. A cord of three strands is not easily torn apart. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen up, as heresy comes in, as we are in spiritual warfare, I want your hearts to be strengthened. I want you to become more and more knit together in love because the more united we are in the Christian's love for one another, the less possibility there is to divide us. That is why it's in the genius of God that he birthed a church and it's not just some mere institution, it is a family of God. It's not like some health club you sign up and join and show up to once or twice a month no for this to have a divine effect on the believer's life you have to be woven into the body of christ or as paul agonizes on your behalf that their hearts may be encouraged having been knit together in love beloved we are the body of christ we are to love one another serve one another and the stronger we become knitted together with that love as the family of God, sharing in that common bond of faith and love and hope in Christ, the less possibility there is for there to be division among us. We should love one another enough that we are involved in one another's lives in such a way that we protect one another and we are um, sharpening one another and that we are there for each other. 1 John chapter 3, 16 through 17 says, We know love by this, that He, Christ, laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's good and sees a brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Answer, it doesn't. Look at the parable of the Good Samaritan. All the priests just walked right by the man that was hurting and in need. And the Samaritan is the one who comes by and not only takes care of the man, but brings him to the inn, says he'll pay for all of his uh, supplies of needing to take care of him, and fulfills a Samaritan. Not, a, not the priest, the Samaritan served a man who he saw was in need. John goes on to say in verse 18, little children... Let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. 
You all remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13, 34 through 35. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. How did Jesus love us? First, eternally, sacrificially, perfectly, freely. It was this agape love. He wasn't seeking anything in return for his love. He, he freely loved. Jesus says, the love that I had for you, I want you to love one another. And then verse 35 is incredible. He says, by this, by how well you love one another, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says if we get this commandment right, the world will see it and they'll want it. They'll want it. They'll see how well we love one another. And it will be the means that Jesus uses to draw man to himself. If we could love in this way out there for the world to see, God would use it mightily. God will use it. You see, not only did Paul agonize for their hearts to become strengthened and for their love to be shared, but number four, he wanted them to have a settled assurance. A settled insurance. Notice the last part of verse 2, and we're just going to cover through to the end of verse 3 this morning, and we'll pick up uh, verse 4, Lord willing, um, next Sunday. Paul says, And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, underline that, the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this is another uh, Pauline type of a sentence here where um, he just packs so much into it, it would take us a week to unpack it all. But um, just sort of quickly, what's Paul saying here? He is simply saying, I want you all to experience all the riches, all the wealth that comes from a full assurance, having faith, in Jesus Christ. Not some of them, not some of the people, all of the people. In other words, you don't need Greek philosophy. Take the book, throw it out. You don't need the Jewish legalism and the dietary food laws they were trying to infiltrate the church. Don't need it. Throw it out. You don't need pagan mysticism. You don't need any of the stuff that the false teachers were bringing in the back door and pushing on the people saying you need Christ plus this and Christ plus that. If you really want to be spiritual, you need Christ plus all of this. And there's more and more and more work that you need to do and there's never enough, no matter how hard you try, to get it all done. We can't do it. It becomes a burden too heavy to bear. And we see here it is everything that you need is in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I want you to attain all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. And what is that mystery? It is Christ himself. Or in other words, Christ alone. Christ alone. And so the more we understand the all-perfect sufficiency 
that is in the perfect Jesus Christ, uh, all that is hidden, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the more settled we become once we understand that and our faith becomes assured. We know, um, well, let me tell you a quick little story as we close. Early in my walk with Christ, you know, I went through a season where I was seeking, you know, something more. Something more from God, a, a second blessing, if you will. That my salvation alone was not enough. That, there, that there's more. I heard that there was more. There were other preachers saying there was more to be had. And because I was not yet grounded in God's word, and I was hearing all the stuff about a second blessing and an additional outpouring of the Spirit and being baptized in fire and all that stuff. And looking back on it, it was because I had struggled as to whether or not I was definitely saved or not. That was at the root of what was going on. And so I said to God, God, I want to know that I know that I'm saved. Right? And if I get that second blessing that's out there and I get filled with that Holy Ghost power and I start talking like these preachers say that I can talk in, then I can proclaim and then I'll know that you have truly saved me. There will be no doubt any longer in my heart that I'm saved. I'll know, God, that I received the blessing from, from you. But let me tell you what God showed me at the end of that search. By His grace, He taught me the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and faith alone and trust in His Word. And what is the sufficiency of Scripture? What does that mean? Well, that means that everything that you need is written right here. Everything you need for assurance of your salvation, it's right here. Everything you need to know how you are to, as a Christian husband, love your wife, right here. Everything you need to know how to be a, a Christian father, right here. Everything you need to know on how you should be a Christian working in the workplace, it's right here. And everything you need to have full assurance as to whether or not you're saved, guess what? It's right here. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself by what? By the standard of God's Word. That's the standard. What God says. And the more I understood of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ had done for me, and the more I understood that, that simple gospel message and that Jesus Christ died for sinners and that I had sinned against a holy and just God and therefore I was in need of His grace, I was in need of His mercy, there was nothing I could do to, to earn it. I certainly didn't deserve it. Therefore, I had to fall at the foot of the cross, repent, and cry out to Jesus Christ and put my whole trust into Him alone. The One who came and added flesh, the God-man. Never losing His deity, but added humanity. And lived the perfect life that I could never live. And went upon that cross and died the life that I never could. Do you know that Jesus prayed for the people who were killing him? Do you know that Jesus forgave his murderers? You could never do that. Are you kidding me? 
we put our trust into the one who lived that life. The work that he has done. And now I can know that I am saved because God's word says so. Because God accomplished the work and not me. And if you have the true word of God written on your hearts, you won't be fooled by fool's gold. I can't be led astray by the, the fake or, or imitation thing anymore or by the counterfeit. You know, once you've had the real thing, you can spot a counterfeit from a mile away. Yeah. I've now been rooted and grounded in the Word of God and filled with His Holy Spirit. And that's what He's saying right here. I want their hearts to be strengthened, having been knit together in love so that they will attain all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. What is the mystery? That is Christ Himself. That God came down and became man and humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But God highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name of above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, unfortunately, that's where we're going to end today. <laughs> that's, where, uh, that's where I landed the plane um, I praise the Lord for getting through this sermon. Um, I thank you for all of our uh, people who came alongside and, and prayed for, for me this week and our family. Um, if you are in need of prayers this morning, we would love to pray with you. You're welcome to come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation this morning. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood. God bless you.